a bias is a pattern, right? right? And we as human beings, we're pattern makers, but we're also pattern changers and we can change those patterns. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success. And I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. If you are a leader, if you aspire to be a leader, if you just want to be a better human being, I think you'll enjoy and probably be challenged by my guest today. Her name is Kim Scott. She's written a few books, some you might have heard of, maybe even read, Radical Candor. That's a book that gives some very useful perspectives on how to give feedback, how to receive feedback. And her latest book is one called Just Work, How to Root Out Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Build a Kick-Ass Culture of Inclusivity. This is a book that challenged me, but a little more about that soon. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and before that led teams at Google, including AdSense. She also managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. That is pretty incredible experience. So Kim is one whom I really admire because she's not just writing from theory, but from deep experience. So in this interview, we talk about some of the different roles that we play as we go through life and in the workplace. We talk about what it means, what to do when you are the person harmed, when you are the person who caused harm, when you're in a leadership position, or if you are an upstander, someone who observes this and what your responsibility is or might be and how to effectively handle this. I took a lot away from this. I hope you do as well. You can learn more about Kim and her work on the web by visiting RadicalCandor.com. You can also visit JustWorkTogether.com and you can find Kim on Twitter at Kimball Scott. Please take this, use it to make the world a better place, whatever your tiny corner of the world is, and I'll do the best to do the same in mine. So please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Kim Scott. Kim, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the School for Good Living. Well, thank you so much for having me and for all the great work that you do. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? To me, I mean, who knows is the TLDR. But for me, life, life is about becoming your best self. It's, it's like it's about turning your, the things that are in your imagination into realities. Uh, that's what it's that's what it is, uh, is partly about. But it's also about doing that with other people. Uh, and, and allowing other people to enter your imagination and to change your imagination, depending on their, to meld your dreams with their dreams. I love it. This I'm looking forward to where this is going to go. (laughs) Maybe I can start with this idea of working with other people and imagination and, and sharing and being shared with I want to start with paper airplanes. Okay. I understand there was a time when you were involved in a company that involve paper airplanes in some form or fashion and you print them and they'd be sent. What, how did this go? What is this? 
There were, you know, we we tried to liven things up. Uh, we, we, we would try to have five minutes of fun every day. Uh, and because I, I, I found, and a lot of other people found, you know, about two or three o'clock energy would start to flag. And so for a while there was, we would play music, we would dance around, but then we started, uh, throwing paper airplanes and we would even get those like Nerf, Nerf guns and, and, uh, they were rock, they were Nerf rockets actually is yes. what they were. They were like a Nerf thing on a rubber band that you would shoot at people. And uh, it just livened things, it, it livened life up. It reminded us not to take ourselves too seriously. But with these, <laughs> with these rockets and these airplanes, Sergio did tell me something as well about stuffed snakes and about celebrating failures as well as successes. Yes. So, so one, of the, one of the best things that I did to build a culture of radical candor on the team at Google was we had an all-hands meeting when I was managing the AdSense team. It was about, you know, 115 people. And so we would all get together once a week. And and early on, I, I brought a, uh, a stuffed daisy. There was a stuffed daisy, whoops-a-daisy. It actually wasn't a daisy, it was something else. I'll tell it, that's a longer story. But let's just say for, for here, it was a stuffed daisy. And I brought a stuffed golden retriever. And so two stuffies. And the stuffed daisy, you would nominate yourself for whoops-a-daisy. And so if you screwed up something that week, you'd, you'd say, I screwed up. And you'd raise your hand and you'd tell the story. And the deal was you'd get instant forgiveness, but you'd also help all your colleagues not make the same mistake. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was sort of a, a part of building a culture in which self-criticism was safe and therefore, and viewed as a gift to others, and therefore, it became easier for us to criticize each other as well as to. But, but, very strict rule with whoops. You you could only nominate yourself for whoops, and then for the for the stuffed golden retriever, the idea was that when you saw someone on your team do something fantastic, do something really great, you would nominate them for the stuffed golden retriever. And the, this had the impact, you know, people are reluctant to give each other praise because it can sound patronizing. It, and it just reminded us that it's important to take a minute to do that, to, to, yeah. to praise each other and to do that publicly. And it's really interesting. There's, there's an interesting study I read about that said that when, when movie critics panned the movie, people thought they were smarter than when they loved the movie. And I think this, this, if you're not careful in an organization, that can kind of take hold where people try to, try to sort of criticize one another to look smart and that you don't want. So, yeah. so that was, those were two important things I had to bring. At first I had to put 20 bucks on top of whoops a daisy because people didn't really want to criticize themselves. And I don't think that people started telling the stories on themselves just because they needed the 20 bucks, but it kind of gave them, you know, plausible deniability. <laughs> they were just playing along. Yeah. Now, what a great way to make it safe to acknowledge something that's less than perfect and to help others learn in the, in the process. 
Yeah, and to and to make you want to make failure safe. You want to you want to develop a growth mindset on the team where where it's good to make mistakes because we learn from them. It's you know we're not gonna we're not gonna innovate if we're not making mistakes. Uh, and so that was that was a big part of the the reason for doing that. Yeah. Well, and, and what you're speaking to as well, this whole idea of, you know, people who maybe are critical of others to look smarter. Um, what's this, um, this cognitive bias that I come across every now and then again, but people who are kinder are perceived yeah. to be less competent. Yes. Right? yes. I know there's a name for that in the leadership psychology. I'm not thinking of it now. Well, but. It, it, when it comes to gender, the people call that the competence likability bias. That's it. That's so it. Very, very often, in particular, a woman who is uh, who is competent is viewed as unlikable, which is like, that's kind of rough. <laughs> yeah. Why is that? Why do you think that? I mean, is this a cultural thing? Is this, is this pretty universal around the world? Have you found or what, what's your, what's your understanding of this? Of the competence likability bias. Yeah. Like, uh, well, I, th- I think as it as it pertains to uh, to to women, the the I, I think there's a reluctance to see women in leadership positions. There's you know, and so when when things surprise us. Uh, we we tend to reject them. I think if you read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, there's there's a lot of examples of of that happening. Um, there's you know there's but bias kind of reflects and reinforces these stereotypes that are kind of in the air, and so it's really important. One of the things that I spend a lot of time on in in my book, Just Work, is disrupting those biases. And there's all different kinds of biases. Uh, there's racial biases or gender biases. There's there's biases around sight, around you know what. Like for example, something that I used to say all the time, which reflects a bias, is oh that's lame. Why would I say that? You know what? Why 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 would I why would I uh, have sort of a negative connotation with a person who can't walk like that? You know. Mm-hmm. So choosing different words and, and learning to flag these biases is really, I think, important for all of us to make sure that we're a bias is a pattern, right? right? And we as human beings, we're pattern makers, but we're also pattern changers and we can change those patterns. Yeah. What do you, what's your, your take on this whole thing about those who say like, we're just so sensitive now, like everybody, you know, yes, words matter on the one hand. I don't think there's very many people that would dispute that that words actually do matter. Yeah. And there's a whole, and I'm related to some of them, <laughs> love some of them very much, but I also think there's this view about, Oh, like, come on, you're just, you're just what you're a snowflake or you're just being soft or it yeah. doesn't actually matter that much what you're saying right now. Yeah. You know, you know there's uh, Russ Laraway who I worked with at Google and who I started a company with and, uh, and who went on to, to lead the people operations team at Qualtrics. He has a really good response to that. There was there was one time when I tweeted something and I said I, I said something like, "Tell me why I'm crazy," and someone tweeted at me and said, "You know that's really offensive to people who struggle with with mental illness." And I understood why, and I agreed, and I said, "Yeah, there's no reason for me to use a sloppy metaphor like that." You know, tell me why I'm wrong. That's what I really meant. 
Right. And uh, and and then there was a, a bunch of people who piled on and said, oh, we're all oversensitive. You know, you didn't do anything wrong, Kim. And then and this and then Russ and, and that put me in, in a slightly tricky situation because as a woman, I often get, you know, accused of being oversensitive or whatever. And then Russ jumped in and he said, look, for the for the for the you're too, too sensitive crowd, let me explain the ROI of changing the words you're using. And he said, the, 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 the investment is very small. You just change the word and you're usually using a better word. And the return is huge. A, you're communicating better because you're being more precise. But B, you're working better with a whole host of people. You're including, you're able to recruit from a bigger group of people. You're able to promote from a bigger group of people. You're able to bring out the best in, in the people that you hire. He said, that's that's like a, you know, that's a really positive ROI. Why wouldn't you just change the, change yeah. the, uh, and then he told me recently something else that I really liked about this. Someone said, someone had used a word that offended someone else at work. At work. I don't remember what it was. And, and, you know, was, was told not to use that word anymore. And, and he said, I'm just being myself. I'm just being my authentic self. <laughs> and, and, and Russ looked at him and he said, you know what? I'm pretty sure that using the word blah is nowhere on the top 100 things of who you are. You know, <laughs> who you are is you're, you're a good leader. You're a good person. You care about being productive. Like, this is unproductive. Don't use the word. So, so I guess those are a few things. I'm going to quote Russ to okay. the, I, for the I'm too sensitive crowd because I liked what he had to say. I love that view about the cost is so minimal, but the benefits can be huge. Yeah. But, you know, I will say I've been guilty of saying that myself. When I wrote Just Work, I, I obviously wanted to make sure that I was, that I was not using biased language. And so I hired someone who I called my bias buster. And so this person read the book and sort of identified some things that I had said that were problematic. And there were eight words that I tended to use in ways that were that were problematic. And my initial instinct was no word is safe in the English language. <laughs> and then I, you know, so quantify your bias. Then I took a I took a step back and I'm like, okay, those are eight words. How many words are there in the English language? I think 250,000, something like that. You know, it's a, it's a, there were plenty of safe words in English. So it is, it's really, it's worth taking the time to, to think about what we really mean when we say what we say. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I think that even it's kind of, for me, a little bit like the, you know, Dweck's fixed mindset and the, yes and the growth mindset of where consciously choosing to orient ourselves toward something like growth of saying, look, I might, A, I might be wrong. I'm open to a possibility. Uh, and, and not just in the way we speak, but in the way we live. Yeah. Right? Like I had an example of this where I went to an event in Washington, DC before the pandemic. So in modern times, this was forever ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, Another world away. Yeah. They had uh, the organizers had chosen, you know, on the upper level was the bathrooms were as they were, but on the lower level, they covered over the sign. It was a, like unisex or universal, whatever bathroom. And I didn't know that. I just saw the, the toilet sign and I went in and then I realized I was in the women's bathroom because there were no urinals. Yeah. And, then, and at first it was a little strange just because it was, uh, it was not usual for me. Yeah. And then there was a, a woman in the bathroom using the bathroom while I was there. 
And I went ahead and used it. And it really, for me, was one of those moments that when I woke up that morning, I didn't expect to encounter a situation like that. Yeah. But it caused me to start to go, well, yeah, why do we differentiate? I mean, we don't at home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, my husband and I share a bathroom. Yeah, and it's not strange. And I just, I kind of thought that maybe that was just one of many examples that I'm ignorant of that my life might actually be enhanced by an awareness of and, and embracing of something that's not familiar or comfortable or whatever. So I don't know if that makes sense there, kind of the line that I'm following, but this whole thing about that is not a sensitivity that the investment might actually be pretty small. The return of inclusion or performance could be massive. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of, a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But your thing too, about hiring this bias buster, I really admire that because I wrote a manuscript a couple of years ago and I had an editor edit it. And one of the examples she gave me was committed suicide mm -hmm. and she changed it to died by suicide. Yeah. So I started paying attention to that. And I realized there's a lot of journalists at publications I respect that are yeah. still using committed suicide. Yeah. Right. And it's yeah. interesting to me that, and another one for me was I didn't get sexual preference versus sexual orientation. Yes. Right. And that's a pretty big implication. In, Huge. Yeah. <laughs> so Huge. these are things that we use without really thinking about it that actually do represent a system, a pattern a belief and behavior that we can then modify. It's pretty remarkable. But the fact that you wrote an entire book, open yourself up to that deliberately in the drafting process. Like I really acknowledge, I really admire you for that. Well, you know, I would have been probably the world's biggest hypocrite if I hadn't been open to it since I was writing about, about that topic. But I want to come back to something you said that I think is so important about having a growth mindset. Like I have worked with almost nobody who really wants to be biased, you know, who that's their goal. That's usually not the goal. And and if that if they want that, then it, we're talking about prejudice, not bias anyway. And so the I think part of the problem is that I mean, it's hard to have a growth mindset about math. You know, that's it's a little hard to say, oh, I, I got this, I got this question wrong. Yay, it's an opportunity to learn something. You know, that's a big mindset mind shift in and of itself. But but if you think about applying a growth mindset to these, to who we are as human beings, it almost feels like sometimes applying a, a, a growth mindset to my ethics or my morality. Like I'm never as good a person as I aspire to be. Uh, and and learning how to become the person I want to be means I have to be willing to notice when I have failed to live up to the person who I want to be. Yeah. And I think that applying a growth mindset to becoming the human beings we want to be is is vital, but it's also much harder because I don't know about you, but sometimes when someone points out a bias that I have, I feel like, you know, uh, I've revealed something horrible about myself. And, uh, you know, it's like the fly to my soul has come undone or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a good description. Uh, and, and that's like a, that's a scary feeling. So learning how to move that shame through that shame, I think is really important to becoming the people who we want to be. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's kind of like the Matthew McConaughey acceptance speech of who's your hero, my 10 year future self. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Cat. Yeah. So, okay. So with this most recent book, Just Work, How to Root Out Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Build a Kick-Ass Culture of Inclusivity, 
you started this before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah bef- before me too, actually, before yeah. Harvey Weinstein's story broke. It's been a, it's been a work in progress for a while. Why did you why did you choose to write this book? You know, shortly after I published Radical Candor, I was giving a Radical Candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company was had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, a person I like and respect enormously. And and one of two few black women CEOs in tech. And after I gave the talk, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm really excited to roll out Radical Candor on the team. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she explained to me that as soon as she would offer someone even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I had four different revelations at the same time. The first was that I had not been the kind of the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be, that I want to be. I had not been an upstander. I had failed even to notice the extent to which she had always had to show up unfailingly pleasant and cheerful at every meeting we had ever been in together. And believe me, she had what to be ticked off about in her uh, in, in that period of time, as we all do at work. The second thing that I realized was that I had been in denial about the kinds of things that happened to me as a woman in the workplace. Uh, I, you know, hard for the author of a book called Radical Canard to admit I had been in denial, but I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. So I had gone through a lot of my career just pretending that things that were happening weren't happening. And then, but but even less than wanting to ever think of myself as a victim, did I want to think of myself as a perpetrator. (laughs) And yet I had been, so I had been even deeper in denial about the kinds of things that I had done to others without, I never meant to to harm other people who I work with, but I had done it. And then the the fourth thing that I realized that as, as a leader, I always prided myself in, you know, creating these BS free zones. But I realized that I had failed to create the kind of environment that would specifically identify and eliminate bias, prejudice, and bullying because I had, I had, you know, you can't solve problems if you refuse to notice them. So those kind of, it was a mind-blowing moment, but I think that was the moment when I sort of decided that, that Just Work was the next book I had to, had to write. Wow. Who's, who do you hope reads and applies what you have to say in this book? Yeah, you know, this is never a satisfying answer for people, but but I, I did write it with four different audiences in mind, which I know is kind of a no-no, but I did it anyway. Uh, the, the first yeah, is for leaders. At least it wasn't everyone. <laughs> no, it's not everyone, but four right. distinct audiences. Okay. But these Because these are the people who need to work together to solve this problem. So the first is for leaders. There, I, I get very detailed about things that leaders can and should do to to address uh, the problem of workplace injustice. But I also wrote it for upstanders because the, the people who observe this nonsense are, are often in a better place to respond to it than either the leader or the person who is harmed by it. So, so I, I, I want to encourage people not to be silent bystanders, but to be upstanders. And then I also wrote it for people who are harmed by these problematic attitudes and behaviors, because I wanted 
arm them with, uh, with, with a way to choose a response. And last but not least, I wrote it also for people who cause harm because we all are bound to mess up from time to time. And so how can we learn to make sure that we, that we listen to the feedback and address the problems that, that, that we change uh, when we need to change? So that's who I that's who I wrote this. And I centered it on the workplace because that's where most of us spend, at least before the pandemic, most of our time. And, and even though I'm not in a workplace now, I'm working all day long. Um, but I I think that I think that th these the, the workplace is the place where we really can create and change rules quickly. Right. Uh, I, I think we can do it at a and must do it at a at a societal level as well. But I think we can all create uh, a, a a better place where we spend our days and should. Yeah, I agree, and and I think with what we're seeing with the Great Resignation and just I mean all the factors in the world right now of people not wanting to go back to the office. Many people, some people do. Yeah. And it's clearly benefits, but you know, some people just leaving the workplace, um, before they had probably planned to other people not wanting to come back, coming back, but not wanting to come back, people wanting to be paid more, you know, this wanting to just change the experience of it. And I think at the root of all of this, this is my own take. I'd love your, your view on this, but I think, although this isn't true for everyone, of course, that the level of prosperity globally even though there's a lot of people, billions of people still without water or sanitation and things like that. And a lot of people in our country that still don't have a great standard of living that nevertheless, the material prosperity on the planet is higher than ever before. Yeah. But what we're all looking for, especially after a certain level of, of uh, comfort is achieved and security is meaning. Yeah. And we're craving that. And we're not going to feel satisfied if we're part of a system or a group that we know is inherently unjust. Yeah. Right. So until we do, until we achieve the kinds of place workplaces that you're talking about, it's, we're going to keep drifting or keep searching for something else, even if the money is there, I think. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. Uh, and I think, I think there's, there's, we, we also need to sort of re-examine the way that we pay people. I think that the people at the top pay themselves too much. Uh, and, pay rank and file employees too little. Um, and well, we, that's, yeah. we really need to take a hard look at that. Yeah. Well, historically, and I'm not, I'm not a historian, but the little bit I know that's, it's never ended well when there was this. No, no it does not end well. So uh, in fact, we're seeing uh, how that ends tragically right now with in Russia. Yeah. So, okay. Um, let me ask you this. One of the, th I want to ask you a little bit about some of the frameworks that you've created okay. in this book. And I appreciate that because I think it makes it easier to understand, to share with others, to apply, but how did you think about the creation of frameworks as you drafted this book and what were maybe one or two that actually seem really central or they've been really, really helpful in your, uh, disseminating these ideas with others. So as I, as I was, as I started writing Just Work, I, you know, I always want to come up with a two by two and there, there is a two by two. <laughs> I love a good two by two framework. But for me, the thing that really helped, the thing as I wrote and really tried to make sense of my own experiences and, and the experiences of others, 
the thing that really helped me was beginning to disentangle bias, prejudice, and bullying, and to offer really simple definitions because in simple responses, because I think very often we conflate these these things as though they're one. But mm -hmm. bias is very different from prejudice, is very different from bullying. And so to me, bias is not meaning it. It's kind of a brain hiccup. Whereas prejudice is meaning it. It's a very consciously held belief. And, and bullying is just being mean. And all of a sudden, when I had this kind of simple framework to, to in the moment, and you don't have to be sure what it is, but, but for me to think, what do I think this is? Then I knew how to respond because I think if it's bias, you want to respond with an I statement, which kind of invites the other person in to understand things from your perspective. It sort of holds up a mirror. But if it's prejudice, and so an example of an I statement, by the way, is I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, or, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be a very, uh, very confrontational statement. But, but, prejudice demands a different response. Because if you hold up a mirror to prejudice, the person's going to say, yeah, you know, they're going to like what they see. And, uh, and so there you need an it statement. And an it statement draws a line between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but they're not allowed to impose that belief on another person. And so an it statement can appeal to the law, it can appeal to an HR policy, or it can appeal to sort of common sense. So it, 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 like, it's not okay to say that kind of yeah, thing. here. Yeah. It's not okay. Or it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate, you know, because of their hair or whatever, but it's also an HR violation not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. And it's also, at least in California, illegal not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. So, so you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're appealing to this, to this boundary that is, that, that, that is sort of generally understood. But if it's bullying, you know, there's no belief, conscious or unconscious, uh, in operations. The person just acting like a jerk and trying to cause harm. You want to use a use statement. And my daughter actually explained to me, explained this to me when she was in third grade. She was getting bullied, and I was encouraging her to use an I statement. I feel sad when you blah, 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 blah. And she banged her fist on the table, and she said, Mom... They are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? And I thought, you know what? That's a really good point. Yeah. And uh, and so so we we talked about saying, you know, you can't talk to me like that, or you can't do that, or you need to stop now, or what's going on for you? Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And uh, and that that. You know, now she was not in the subordinate role. You know, she was playing an active role and sort of pushing. If if an I statement invites a person in, a, a you statement sort of pushes them away. So did did she end up doing that with this bully? And did it did it work? Do you know how that? She did do it. She did do it, and and it helped. I mean, you know, it it. What really you need with with bully is you need the teacher or at work you need the manager to create consequences for that bullying. Yeah. And 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 there need to be sort of conversational consequences in the moment. There need to be in the workplace sort of compensation consequences. You don't want to give the highest ratings and the biggest bonuses to the bullies. And there have to be career consequences. Like there's a I find with a lot of the companies that I've worked with, there's a moment in their growth when the jerks begin to win. And that's the moment when the company's culture begins to fail. So you need to make sure, 
I think, especially in the case of bullying, it, it, you need you need leaders to play a role, but you also need upstanders to play a role to intervene. And there's, were you going to say something? No, I, I was just saying that I totally agree with upstander. And that was a term that I hadn't really heard. I, I think Starbucks had done a series called that or something, but before this about the four different roles, cause that's another framework, right? Yeah. That, yes. that matters to know which, like, which is happening. So I love that bias, bullying, bias, prejudice or bullying. And then what role are we in? Yeah. So helpful. Yeah. But it's, it gets complicated, right? Cause there's four roles and three things. And then the three things can get worse when there's, once you lay your power on, but it's yeah. not that complicated. Like these, we can wrap our mind around this. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of a little, and this might not be the, this might not be a perfect analogy, but um, I went through a period of time in my life where I played a lot of monopoly. I loved mm-hmm. that board game. And, and I went so far as I bought a book, there's a book called the monopoly companion and it, it's like 200 pages on monopoly and wow. it goes through history and all this. And, and it, it points out certain things like, you know, which properties are landed on statistically the highest and which has the highest return and stuff that once it's pointed out to you. Yeah. Like, oh, I get it. Yeah. It's obvious. Now I know what to do. Now I know what to do, but before you're just like kind of playing the game as best you can and hoping something good happens or not too bad, but that that's one thing. And then the other thing is I hear you share this and it, it reminds me, I interviewed someone named Stephen Cope, who's a spiritual teacher back East. And when I asked him his opinion, like, or asked him to tell me what is life about? And I, I think about this a lot. He said that it's about becoming in the Hindu tradition, what's called a Jivan Mukti, mm-hmm. this whole awake in this lifetime. Yes. Right. And what you're saying, what I'm hearing now is like to be aware, like, oh my goodness, this is like, this is a bully and this is what's called for. It's you, right? Hey, I think this might be prejudice. And I love your formulation. Like, and you just said most of it here about, I don't think you meant, I don't think you meant what you said. Let me tell you how I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like very generous and different. And why I say like the soul awake in this lifetime is to be present, to, to be responsive to, or responsible like there's a lot in this that for me, maybe it's just my orientation that there's actually, I think some spiritual work here, if we're willing to see it that way or take it on that way. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I totally, totally agree with you because it's so, you know, another way of, of saying something similar, Kimberly Crenshaw said, if you can't name it, you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. And, and giving, giving things names uh, can can really help us be more aware of them, yeah. Uh, and and I think especially when there's you know there's p- these patterns that happen over and over again, and it's it's easy in some ways, uh, you know, fighting gaslighting is another way of saying I want to be aware, I want to be present because I don't want to be confused. You know, I w- I want to see things as they really are. I want to notice things. I'm going to wave. One of the things I recommend is bias disruption, and I use a purple flag. And every time I say something biased, I'm going to wave a purple flag. So I just said, you see. And what I meant was you notice. And this is one of the words that my bias buster told me about. This is one of the eight. Yeah. Said, you often use sloppy sight metaphors, and it's sort of ableist. And I knew that this was right, because I don't mean see. I mean notice. And uh, or understand or, you know, and it's useful to stop and think about what I really mean. And and 
the the reason why it's problematic is that it kind of implies that if you can't see, you might not notice these things. And in fact, that one of the people who was helping me edit the book is a historian who's blind. And he's one of the most clear thinkers I've ever met in my whole life. And so I really, I thought I understood it. I thought I agreed. I thought I had stopped using sloppy sight metaphors. And, and yet I did a quick search of the document before I sent the final version to my editor. And in a 350 page book, guess how many times I'd used sloppy sight metaphors? 57. 99. Wow. 99. Yeah. It's every third page. It was wow. unbelievable. And I was thought I was conscious. I thought I was enlightened, but I was not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's like, um, I had the chance to do a motorcycle riding school once and the, the instructor rode right behind us and he would film us. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, one of the goals most of the students had, including me was to put our knee down. Like if you lean that far, you're like the pros. And I'm yeah. like, oh man, on turn three, I was so close. I must've been half an inch. And we come back and I'm like that far, <laughs> like, I'm not even close. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way we perceive things is often not how they really are. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt about that. Okay. I do want to ask you about this, about, I really appreciate something you, you write in this book where you talk about, um, you talk about silence and you talk about it as a default. And then you also talk about conflict as maybe a reason. Sometimes, sometimes it's the reason for our silence, but I know there's not necessarily, I haven't put a clear question out there yet, but will you talk about silence? Will you talk about defaults and will you talk about conflict and benefits? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, that I learned in, in tech is the power of the default. And, and a lot of people have written about this for, for a long time. The default on your, on your driver's license is I'm not an organ donor. Mm-hmm. And then when the default is, you know, you are, unless you opt out, then you have way more, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic, obviously that there are so many organ donors, but you, but, but at least you uh, have benefited someone. And so uh, I, I wanted to think about the, one of the things that became clear to me as I was writing Just Work is the number of times in my career where something really bad happened to me or happened to someone else I cared about when there was some sort of injustice. And, and my default position was always to remain silent, not to speak up about it. And I really wanted to think about why is that? What's the, the default to silence? And I think we're, I think part of the reason why we default to silence is that we're so aware of the risks and costs of speaking up. It feels very risky. We're less aware of the risks of remaining silent. And for me, at least, one of the, one of the bad things that happened as a result of defaulting to silence was that I felt like I was losing a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. And, and I also felt like I wasn't becoming the person I wanted to be. And I, I felt like kind of a wimp and, and it was so, so it was really important to me in the book to encourage people to make a choice to respond or not to respond. And when you're the person who's harmed, mm-hmm. if you're the upstander, you don't have a choice. You must intervene. But if you're harmed, you do get a choice. You don't have, you can choose your battles, but, but you want to make that a conscious, conscious choice that you own rather than one that is imposed upon you by default, I think. Yeah, there's power 
There's huge power in in choice. Yes. All right. And well, then th- recognizing that you have a choice that sometimes you don't necessarily feel like you have. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. Um, just to keep us on pace here, I want to I want to move us through into the lightning lightning round. But before I do, uh, I do want to I want to ask. I know there's so much in this book. It's a long book, by the way. I listen- yeah, it was. It's a, it's a long book, and it's definitely. It was hard to write and people have told me it was hard to read. So feel free to read it, you know, a chapter at a time. Yeah. What I would do is I got the audible and I would read it usually mm-hmm. while I was on the elliptical 30 minutes mm-hmm. at a time. And yeah. I just, you know, honestly for me, because I'm not currently in a leadership position, leadership of people, but I thought, man, this is a huge undertaking. You know, I used to wonder why more people didn't aspire to be entrepreneurs or to be leaders or managers. And now I think I get a little more. Like yeah. it's not just, oh, it's status or it's income, but if you really take it on as a, a, the responsibility that it is, it's pretty massive. So I would finish reading it going, man, I'm afraid that if I was in a leadership position right now, I'd be doing it wrong. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, look, I did it wrong. As you could tell from the stories I told in the book, I certainly got it wrong more often than I got it right. Well, man, the other thing that one of the other things that really like stood out to me was some of the stories you tell from your own experience. I could hardly believe I would tell them to my wife about (laughs) there was a time when you were working overseas and you were told there wasn't a toilet available for you. Yes. Yeah. And that I had to pee in a mop in a mop closet. (laughs) That is remarkable. Yeah, it really did happen. Yeah, it was. It was remarkable. It was really pretty shocking. Well, that, and I won't, and I, I learned some new words. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. had some things happen to you that I didn't even know they were a thing. I didn't know it was a word either. Actually, you're wow. talking about frauding. Yeah. Um, I, had, I had to consult the urban dictionary and look online. Yeah. Yeah. No, I Googled what had happened and found there was a word for it. Who knew, you know? Wow. Well, and some of the other things like that space flight, and I know for the listener, there's almost no context here aside from various incidents of, some of them were bullying. Some of them were, I don't know, assault. Like yeah, se- yeah, sexual harassment, sexual assault. That's it's remarkable to me that you had so many, and then for me to realize that's not unusual. I I talked to my wife. She was a professional for many many years. She's like, oh yeah, that's that kind of stuff happened to me. People saying and doing things <laughs> like that to me. I'm like that is not that is not right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is not right. And remember, like I am, uh, you know, I was writing this book from a position of privilege. Imagine, you know, if I didn't have, you know, the privileges that I have, it's much, much worse for many other people than it was for me. And that was, the you know, you said you're surprised one person. I was surprised I had that many stories. I had been so deep in denial when I started the book. I thought, oh, you know, I have a couple of stories, but I'll have to do research and interview other people. And I'm like, oh my goodness, now that I think about it, I have enough stories for six books. Uh, what, what's it been like? I mean, I know, I just know you a little bit from seeing your work online. And I think I told you uh, before the interview that uh, I was part of an EO, an entrepreneur's organization group that you addressed, which I got a lot out of, I enjoyed. But so I, I have some sense of your style, your pretty open. It seems you're pretty warm. Um, I think you come across to me as very smart, but to be so personal, right? Cause there's a lot of people that teach this that are more, I don't know, academic yeah. or less personal. What's it been like for you to share so openly from your experience? How, is, how does that make it? How's it been received or what's that been like? You know, it, it was when I started writing, 
I always, growing up, I always wrote a journal. I always wrote in a journal every day. And when I started writing this book, I almost kind of went into that headspace as though I was writing it just for myself. And I will confess to you that about a month before it, it was due to be published, I was like, oh my gosh, why did I tell all those stories publicly? I had a, had a real moment of panic. And, and uh, another guy who was on the, the team that I led at Google read it and he sent me a note. He said, I hope you're not having a vulnerability hangover. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was having a vulnerability hangover. Like I had really, uh, I told a bunch of stories, but it, but at the so it was, but at the same time, it was sort of liberating. There were several moments when I was writing the book where I realized I've been carrying this thing around that I didn't know I was carrying around, and now that I've articulated it, I can put it down. And so it was, it was liberating as as well as scary. That's great. Yeah, I think I think of that to this personal moment in the podcast here, but I think this is part of where I've been really hung up in getting my own book across the finish line to be something that's published. Because it's one thing if it's like, I know, you know, people like Jung or many others will say, Hey, a hundred years after my death, you can publish yeah. this. But yeah. when other people, even when you anonymize them or aggregate, it's like there's people alive, they're gonna read it, they're gonna know. Yeah. And you know, hopefully it will reach and serve a lot more than that. But I would imagine that that's that's got to be challenging, but I would. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I, I think one of one of my one of my failures as a person is that I often don't imagine before I'm in the situation what it's going to be like. So I probably should have been more aware and more afraid as I was writing, but I wasn't until right before it came out. It was sort of like one time I I went to trapeze school. And it just didn't occur to me until I was two thirds of the way up the ladder that how high I was climbing and how afraid I would feel. Uh, it, uh, and then I just had no choice but to keep going. Yeah. Well, that's maybe not a bad thing. Yeah. Maybe. Right. Okay. Well, okay. With that, then what I want to ask this is this, what haven't we talked about that you want to talk about, or you think would be of service to the listener? knowing that we're about to move on to the enlightening lightning round and writing and creativity. Yeah. I think that we need to talk for a moment about power and, and how much worse power uh, makes all of these things. So when you have bias or prejudice plus power, you're creating the conditions for discrimination. When you have bullying plus power, you're creating the conditions for real harassment. And when you have physical touch plus power, whether it's, sort of physical power or positional power, you you have the you created the the conditions for physical violations or even physical violence. And there's tons more to say about this, but we really need to make sure that we're we're rigorous about creating checks and balances in our in the systems that we create at work and and also in the world in uh in our in political life as well as in in business life because otherwise if we if, if we don't consciously design the systems that that govern our institutions uh, for justice we're going to get systemic injustice so tons more to say about that but power is a real problem and if one of the biggest mistakes that i made in my career happened because I sort of imagined, well, if I were in charge, everything will be sweetness and light, right? Uh, but, you know, 
bad things won't happen and they will happen when you're in charge, even no matter how good your intentions are. So you really want to make sure that, um, that, that you put place checks and balances on yourself as a leader. Yeah, that makes sense. And this, I think this is an example, maybe, maybe you can tell me because it's an example from your book, but you talk about one place where you worked that no single and no single individual could make a hiring decision or even a promotion decision. Yeah. Right. Is that the kind of example that you're talking about? That was, that's exactly. So when I was, when I, when I first got to Google and, and I want to say that Google was not perfect. And a lot of people had terrible experiences at Google. Uh, but, but I will say that one of the things that I think they did right, that, that Shona Brown, who led, uh, people operate business operations at Google, uh, did right was create systems where if you didn't like your boss, you could move to another team. Cause you know, we know that people join companies, but they leave bosses and they didn't want to lose people. So they're like, if you don't like your boss, you can find another boss. You're free to do it. Uh, there were you, no boss could unilaterally hire someone. You had to go through it. No, no boss could unilaterally promote someone. No boss could unilaterally fire someone. No boss could unilaterally decide on someone's bo- bonus. And so they very consciously stripped the usual sources of power that managers have away from managers. And that created a much better environment for, for innovation, but also, uh, you know, for, for workplace for, to avoid bias, prejudice, bullying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the enlightening lightning round, again, this is a series of questions on a variety of topics. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and then be quiet. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. I might tug on a response here or there, but okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Is like a blank. Blank canvas. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing one of Peter Thiel's questions. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? The important truth that very few people agree with me on is that we should we should really dramatically, dramatically limit uh, income inequality and wealth inequality uh, in in the country, like like dr- dramatically. No one should ever have more than $100 million, period. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Radical candor. All right. Question number four. What book other, uh, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. You know, that probably won't surprise you, but that is the most common response to this question. Over like 150 interviews, I'll bet it's come up close to a third of the time. Wow, that's amazing. Well, it is a remarkable book. Yeah, it is. Um, It's the kind of book that many people read many times in their life. What's uh, What's your relationship with this book been like? You know, it's interesting. I, I read that book shortly after September 11th. I remember I went to a conference. I went to TED, to the TED conference. Mm. And I was so sort of devastated by what had happened. I just remember going back up to the my hotel room and spending the whole afternoon reading it. <laughs> mm. And 
the the thing that is so inspiring about that book for me is just remembering that no matter what happens, you get to choose how you respond. And that's where your freedom is. Uh, and, uh, and, and he was writing that from, from concentration camps, of course. So, so, you know, I, I've never, you know, I've, I have lived a very, very comfortable life by and large. And, and so that's really, I think, meaningful uh, to me uh, about that book. I also love, there was, I think it was in man it might have been something else he wrote but i'm pretty sure it was in man's search for meaning when he was trying to decide whether he should leave germany mm -hmm. and and a temple had been had been destroyed and he walked by it and he bent down and picked up a fragment of stone and it was it said honor thy father and thy mother and so he decided he had to stay because he couldn't get his parents out Wow. And I just thought that was so, I think about that all the time. Mm, remarkable. What are you currently reading? I am, I am currently reading a bunch of books about, uh, about the, mo the most recent one was um, uh, American Kleptocracy. And I've got to, I'm going to pull up the title because I can never remember exactly what the title, but it's Moneyland. I'm reading a book called Moneyland about, uh, about how we have got to get our, uh, the, the way that we allow people to hide uh, their money. Uh, we got to stop it. It's what funded, I think, Putin's war. Mm, yeah. And with crypto now, well, yeah. it's probably harder than ever. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Thank you for that. Uh, all right. Question number five. So you traveled, you travel a lot. I would imagine. I but, used to travel a lot. Oh, in, yeah. The, the days before the pandemic. No, not even before the pandemic. Since I had kids, I've, I really hate, I hate leaving them. Uh, and so, so I, I do not travel in the last thir they're 13 now. So in the last 13 years, I have traveled a lot less. Oh, okay. Well, that answers the question. <laughs> no, it was, it was a question about travel being when you travel, what's something you do to make it less painful or more enjoyable? Oh, I can tell you when I do, I listen to books on audible and play 2048. <laughs> which it just, it allows me to block out everything on, you know, uh, if I'm standing in line, I'm still listening to the book, but I also, I need that. I need the 2048 is just one of those silly games that you're, you know, you're making numbers go down and I don't know this it's kind of like Tetris. There's another, there's another game like it. That's called threes. Okay. And it's kind of where you match and it. Yeah. And then the numbers add up and you try to like, you know, Try, try to get as big a number as possible. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, question number six, what's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Um, stopped drinking. I stopped drinking alcohol. Uh, and I started, instead of running, I started walking. Hmm, good for you. Yeah. I love to walk. I love to walk. It's great. And, and my back was always hurting and I feel younger now because I'm not, my back doesn't always hurt anymore. So that's wonderful. You know, just on that topic, I had this, I, I had this idea talking about unexamined assumptions, you know, that w the natural course of life was just to get old, to get sick and to die. And then I was reading a, a spiritual teacher an, an Indian teacher, Yogananda, 
And he said, he gave the analogy of aging, like a fruit ripens and then you just fall from the tree, but yeah. that totally open. Like we don't have to get sick. That doesn't have to be a step. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I love that. Okay. Uh, Falling from the tree. That's the way I'm going to think about it. I like it. Ripe all the way. Ripening. Yeah. Okay. Question number seven. And even this, this might be one of these things a bias buster would point out for me uh, because I'm using the word American here, or maybe I should say United States citizen, but uh, what's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew more about slavery and the ways in which it corrupted our country. Okay. I feel like I should ask more about that, but is there anything more you'd say knowing we're in the lightning round? The trauma of slavery. I mean, the fact that people still vacation at places that are called plantations. I mean, what they really were was forced labor camps. Why would, why would you, I'm going to go to a vacation at a forced labor camp. Like, I, I feel like we just have not at all come to grips with, uh, with the, the, the ways that, that slavery then impacted our incarceration system uh, the ways in which our laws around who lives where are, you know, I think we have this tendency, uh, going back to your your thoughts about a growth mindset, to assume that was there. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes, you know, certainly in, I grew up in Memphis and I live in California. And there's this attitude that, oh, racism is in Memphis, not in California. Whereas recently I was, you know, I was talking to, I was at home in Memphis and there were a number of Black Lives Matter signs in the yards and they were there and st staying there. Whereas when I in California put a Black Lives Matter up in my yard, it gets once a week, it gets stolen. I have to keep, I have to keep buying them. So I think we're, we're, we're not as aware as we should be of the, the ways that the, the sort of original sin of our of our country is still with us today and we haven't done enough to atone for it. Uh, I, I think you're right. All right. Thank you for that. Question number eight. Um, this one's about relationships. What's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? You know, I, I think it's so important to spend time every day with the people who you love. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's, there's just nothing. This is one of the things in the pandemic that I realized, I realized that, you know, when the, when the kids were here, I was, I was all day, every day, which they do not need to be for their own sake. But I realized it was, it was disruptive. And I was taking kind of like a 30% productivity hit at work, but I was getting a 60% parenting gain. Uh, and it was a great trade-off. And I, I realized, you know, I, I used to talk when in Radical Candor, I write a lot about how important it is to have these conversations in person. And it is important to, to get together in person with the people who you work with, but it's way more important to be in person with your family. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And and now when I think about all these conferences and stuff that I used to go to all the time, a lot of them are happening virtually, and that's way better. I mean, it's not quite as good, like you, they're not quite as impactful, but now all of a sudden there's 100 people that didn't have to leave their family for three, 
two or three days. And that matters. Yeah, absolutely. As well as the ecological benefit. Yes. Yeah. 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 You're not, there's not as many flights, not as many hotel rooms, not, I mean, there's the cost of getting a big team together in person is, is it's astronomical, really, not just, and it's, you know, paying for the flights and the hotels is the least of it. What we do to the planet, what we do to the families of people are, are, are intense. So I think really remembering to have, you know, it's easy. It's also easy, like with my husband, especially when we have twins and when they were young, uh, it was so easy to just never talk to each other. You know, mm -hmm. never to sit down and have a real conversation. And remembering to do that every day is important. Yeah, I like that. Okay, question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about money? Money is the lack of poverty is bad, um, but but money is not good. <laughs> Right, it's it's kind of a a net uh, a net negative. So so for me, the important thing uh, about money that probably the most important decision I made about money happened when I was in business school, and I saw people were on this what I call the hedonic. I didn't come up with this, but I love this term, the hedonic treadmill. Like they were never going to have enough money. And no matter how much money they made. And I realized that I, I made myself a really solemn promise. I said, once I have bought a house and I can pay for my kids' education, then I'm done. I'm not going to do things for money. And in fact, when I, when I started writing Radical Candor, I walked away from a job that was, you know, where the equity was worth a lot of money. And people didn't believe that I was walking away from that job to write a book, which was not going to make, I mean, I, you know, I, I, it's been a great, great ride, but the, the book did not make me a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I, it, I decided to do it because I had this dream that I'd always thought, well, I'll write, I'll write in the future, I'll write later. And I had this dream that I had gotten early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. And that it was too late for me to write the book. And I realized I, I got to Like, this is what I want to do. Why am I going to stick around for the money? I've, I, I've, my husband and I have bought our house. You know, we're, um, we've put money aside for college. And so I got to walk away. I got to do what I really want to do. Well, good for you for actually doing that. Yeah, you've got to manage your money. Don't let your money manage you. Yeah, that's great. Well, speaking of money, something I have done in an attempt to demonstrate my gratitude to you for making time to talk with me today is I have through Kiva.org, I have made a micro loan to a woman named Zazira who lives in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to help her buy dairy cows, which she will then uh, milk and sell the milk and improve the quality of life for people in her community, herself, her family. She's 40 years old with six children and she's wow. raising livestock for 12 years. So, wow. Well, thank you. That is really, that's a meaningful gift. I really appreciate that. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Well, congratulations. You survived the lightning lightning round. Excellent. <laughs> so the last, the last part here is just a, a few questions about writing and, and creativity. Um, where I'd love to start is uh, I understand you have, um, I don't know what you, I don't know if you call yours a she shed. I know some people yes. do. Do you, do you call it that? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I call it the glass house, but it's a little box in the backyard. Tell me about that. So when I was writing Just Work, I was writing a lot about, I was writing in my bedroom uh, and I was writing a lot about gender injustice. And I finally <laughs> said to Andy, my husband, I was like, this is the wrong place to be writing this book. I must, I need a space that's outside of the house. And so we started building, we basically got uh, three sliding glass doors from Home Depot and, and worked with this great, this great contractor, uh, Mike Turkington. I, I give him thanks actually in the acknowledgement of just work because I never would have finished the book. And we built this kind of shack in the, in the, in the backyard. And uh, it's got a great view looking out over Silicon Valley. And, and it turned out, we started it before COVID, but it turned out so important during COVID wow. that I could have a place. It was like a room of one's own. I had a place where I could go and focus. It was, it was wonderful. I love, I love that. I'm not there now because the acoustics aren't very good. Um, but but it, was, it was really a creative, generative space for me. Yeah. And the, my favorite part about it is at the end of the day, when dinner was ready, my kids would blow the trumpet. <laughs> they were playing the trumpet. And that was my sign that my workday was over. It was time to come down. That is really cool. That's fantastic. And I understand. Well, let me ask you this instead for now. The, do you think that writers are born like, are we born a writer? And if we're just not, we're kind of doomed to never actually be a writer or can anyone be a writer? I think anyone can be a writer. The question is, do you, do you enjoy writing? Mm. I think, and, and it's almost not even, do you enjoy writing, but like, does it really, for me, writing is restorative mm. and I love it. I, I, I would, you know, I've written several unpublished novels i'm writing another novel hopefully it'll get published but I, but even when i was writing radical candor i was writing it because i needed i needed to write it mm. um why i needed that i can't tell you uh but but i don't think there there's so many different ways to be creative and you want to find the way that works for you i mean it, with all things in life it's it's like you want to you don't necessarily want to do the things that other people think you're good at. You want to do the things that, that, that give you comfort and strength. And so for me, writing is writing is that thing. You know, I think even among writers, not, not just among people, but among writers, I do think you're, I just learned yesterday, unique. If you're going to use unique, it, it really does mean singular. So I won't say you're unique in this regard, but you're rare in that writing is restorative for, for you, because most of my guests, when I ask about the writing process, they will uh, confirm my suspicion that writing never really gets easier or even more enjoyable. Our writing, the quality of it might improve with practice, but for many people, writing seems depleting kind of the Hemingway. Oh, it's easy. You just sit down at the keys and bleed yeah. you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But it sounds like that's not your experience. It is actually somehow fulfilling. It's fulfilling, but I think it, that doesn't mean it's easy. Right. I mean, it's I it's it's interesting when I was really especially for, for me, the part that there's different writers who who find different parts of the process 
easier and harder. Mm-hmm. For me, the first draft is the most fun part. That's mm-hmm. the part I actually editing is actually work. <laughs> editing uh, does not, but but all of it. It is for me really. I just I find that it is the opportunity to root around in my own mind and sort of have these arguments with myself and figure out what I believe is, um, is really rewarding in a way that few things are, few other things are. And that's the second hardest part of writing for me is getting inside my own head. The hardest part is getting back out. And that's the editing part. And that's where I need editors. And with both of my books, I had more than a hundred collaborators in the Google Doc oh. that I wrote. So I, I really value getting, getting sort of thoughts and reactions from, from other people. That's how I climb clamor back out of my own head. That's really cool. I had the opportunity a few years ago to develop a presentation for, at the time we had about 10,000 employees and we wrote a script, you know, we started with the brief and wrote a script and all this. And I think I had a microcosmic version of your experience where I didn't have a hundred collaborators, but I had maybe a dozen. And I remember being so proud of looking back at that 45 minute presentation that was hundreds of hours of work yeah. collectively and recalling specific lines that were this, this, this discussion, or that came from that person. And it was really a neat experience. Yeah. Coming back to the very beginning of our conversation, it is sort of making your dreams come true and melding your dreams with others. And it's, yeah. it's a cool, it's a really cool experience. Yeah. I think this is part of the magic of filmmaking, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, that it is so collaborative and people can be involved in different ways, but they're all working toward one result and things. That's yeah. neat. Yeah. Who has been influential for you in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? Uh, George Eliot. So I mostly read, I mostly read novels. Uh, I I find that novels are a great way to understand myself and also other people. Uh, And so one of, one of the great novelists of all time, I I think is George Eliot or Marianne Evans Cross was her real name. Um, Virginia Woolf is another, uh, another writer who I love. Um, Toni Morrison, when I was in, when I was in college, I got to take a class with Toni Morrison Wow! and her, I had already read a number of her books and, and her, um, her writing had a big impact on me. And, and she also encouraged us to sort of reconsider a canonical American literature. She has a great book actually called playing in the dark. I think it's called about sort of reinterpreting, uh, sort of. American, you know, Moby Dick, et cetera, American literature. And, and I just, I learned so much from her and language and, and, and how to identify these voices in your head that are getting in your way. Um, so very, very grateful for that experience. Mm. Um, I, uh, the, I also love, you know, I love reading Young and Viktor Frankl and there's, 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 Karen Horney's Neurosin, Neurosis and Human Growth. Uh, some of these psychological texts had a, had a big, uh, big impact on me. Right on. How connected do you feel to the reader in the moment of drafting? I, I think that's part of the reason why it's so important to get other people to comment. 
I really try to understand how what I'm trying to say might get misinterpreted or interpreted differently. It's for me, the reader, the whole reason to, to write and to edit more specifically, if I were just going to write for myself, I would just, I would always stick with that first draft. Right. Um, but the reason to edit is, is to help other people. I, you know, you want, at least I want my ideas to have a difference, to make a difference to, I want to make those dreams real in the world. And so writing for readers, there's always, but a, but a, hopefully a diverse set of readers in my head. But I remember there was one experience I had when uh, a young woman came up to me right after I'd given a talk about radical candor. And she said, you know, I, I read, I became a manager for the first time. She said it was really hard and her eyes filled with tears. I could tell it had been seriously hard. And then she said, and then I read Radical Candor and I felt like I had a, a sister with me who could help me. And that was like one of the all time great moments of, of my career. Similarly with Just Work. I, uh, I, I got a note from a guy who had been one of the early engineers who worked on Lotus one, two, three, and, and one of two few black engineering leaders in, uh, in tech. And he was raised in Oakland, California. And he said, I never imagined that I could have so much in common with a white woman from the South. <laughs> and that was, that was like, yes, I, uh, I, I did something there. Um, and so, so those are the kinds of moments that, that really, you know, are fuel for the next book. Yeah. That's awesome. What happens in routines serve you well, or which ones have you tried and that didn't, didn't really work for you, you kind of abandoned or just left behind? Yeah. The thing that, uh, is helpful for me when I, when I first started writing, I would try to have these four hour blocks of time. And two and a half of those hours were always wasted. I cannot focus for that long. Mm -hmm. So the routine that works for me is to write for an hour and a half and then take a walk and then write for an hour and a half and then maybe have lunch and then write for an hour and a half and then have a meeting. And if I have energy left, I'll do another hour and a half, but sometimes I just don't. And not pushing myself beyond my limit, like allowing myself the freedom to take a walk or, you know, watch a TV show or whatever I need to do to, to rest and recover. Yeah. What, um, what tools do you find invaluable as a writer? Um, Google documents is the, it, 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 because it, the collaboration is so easy, uh, that, that I, it is, and being able to have what, what, sort of document centric chat. Like there's a paragraph and one person will say one thing and another person will say another thing and it's all right there. It's really helpful for me in, in, in writing, uh, in writing is the, the collaborative aspect of it is much easier. How do you organize once you've got your table of contents or your outline kind of figured out and you feel good about it? How how do you draw upon the research you've conducted like stories you think you might want to include, and then you know where to go to find them or develop them or statistics or other things. How do you, 
how do you pull all of that into the framework you've created? I have a pretty chaotic process, which is I kind of, I don't usually start with a, with the table of contents. And in hmm. fact, sometimes I get to one and I realize it's all off. In fact, with just work, I wrote 80,000 words and threw it away and started again because oh. I realized the structure was wrong. I don't, I, you know, it's funny. I was talking to, I was talking to my agent who's like, why can't you just like write your outline and write the book? I'm like, well, if I knew the outline, then I wouldn't need to write the book. Like <laughs> to me, the writing, the, the the structure comes out of the writing. And so it's a little, it's a messy, it's a messy, messy, messy process. Interesting. Not very linear. Yeah. That just confirms for me, this other suspicion that, you know, there, there really is no one size fits all approach. It's just what works for us. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one of the challenges. It's one of the joys sometimes too, of discovering, you know, ourselves a little bit, the yeah. tools and the routines and things like that. Um, okay. So last, last couple questions here, and then we'll, we'll wrap. What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? I think a great sentence does a couple of things. A great sentence helps the reader feel the way that the writer is feeling. It, it, it tells like a little story. Um, but a great sentence also offers up kind of a way to think about that story, a framework. Uh, and I think very often when, when a sentence really packs a great punch, it, it, it's communicating both on that intellectual plane and that emotional plane at the same time, succinctly, as short as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So my last question for you here is just um, what advice or encouragement would you offer to anyone who's listening, who's either in the messy middle of getting their own book across the finish line, or it's a dream they've had for a long time, but they haven't actually begun. What do you say to that person? The, the thing that helped me write probably more than anything else was just blocking a couple of writing blocks in my calendar every day and, and treating that meeting almost like a, a sacred thing that I was doing. I told my assistant at one point when I was, I was writing a novel, when I worked at, at Google and I had a writing block in the morning and a writing block in the late afternoon. And I told my assistant, those are my meetings with God. You cannot schedule over them. <laughs> Wow. And, uh, and, and treating it like a, like a sacred thing. Um, uh, but also doing the, uh, doing the mundane thing of putting it in your calendar, uh, was for me the most helpful thing. All right. That reminds me of Gavin Edwards. He wrote a book about like lessons from Mr. Rogers kindness and so forth. Yeah. And I just always remember he talked about, this is like, in some ways writing is like building a brick wall that it yeah. really is words are like these bricks and we yeah. just like them. And then, and then I love that same teacher, Stephen Cope that I mentioned earlier, he talked about his work is to suit up and show up. So it's one thing to have the appointment with God, but yeah. it's another to show to up, show for up. and yeah. good for you that you have not good for, good for us. Well, Kim, this, I've really enjoyed this. I, I did enjoy reading your book. It challenged me in many good ways. Um, 
I've enjoyed this conversation. I've been inspired by your leadership. This is one thing I love about what I know of you. It's you're not just some theoretician, if that's a word. It reminds <laughs> me, right? You probably heard this in theory and practice. There's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Yes. <laughs> right. But you are drawing upon a rich history, like a rich experience of, of leadership. And, and I know I began kind of with Sergio, but I just want to maybe end with this too of he told me that of a team of about a hundred people that you led, that you met with every single one of them, one-on-one every quarter. I did. I did. Well, there was the thing that I loved about the job. Uh, and, and, you know, once the team grew to 700, I could no longer do that anymore, but which was, which was hard for me to come to grips with, but it was so important for me to really at a personal level, get to know people and, and uh, not that you're going to get, to know people deeply and in short one-on-one meetings, but to understand, to give them an opportunity to tell me what was bugging them, like what was wrong and, uh, and, and what could I do to help make it right? Yeah. And he's probably told you this, or at least I hope he has, but, and he and I talk about this and he writes and shares. So I, I don't think I'm betraying a confidence. Sorry, Sergio, if I am, (laughs) I trust you'll forgive me. He told me that growing up in Poland, his view of leadership was that it was very authoritarian. It was distant. It was cold. And that as a 23 or 24 year old coming to the United States, working for Google and seeing your example taught him that of what leadership can be. And that is part of the work he's doing now with these underrepresented and underserved entrepreneurs and making a difference, a big difference, I think in the world. And so I think that's pretty cool. And for what it's worth. I just want to thank you for that as well. Well, I thank him. It was, you know, it was so those, those AdSense years were really special years in my career. And they were, they were special because of all the people on, on that team who were all of them equally committed to making sure that we created the kind of culture where we did care personally and challenge directly, where we really did uh, support one another. That's awesome. All right, Kim. Well, please keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our paths will cross again, but I will look forward to it when they do. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, Life still isn't working for many people, whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones. There are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better. Consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. 
can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.